Now, for the show that brings combat sports stories to life from the great state of Ohio, this is Forged in Ohio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of Forged in Ohio. My name is Jake Murren, and I'm the host of this podcast. If this is the first episode of the show you've clicked on, then I think you made the right choice. I have an absolute killer joining me on the show today. He is a 6-0 amateur lightweight fighter, the first ranked active amateur lightweight in the state of Ohio, and he's finished five of his last six opponents. He is Mad Max Metzger. Thanks for coming on the show, and welcome to Forge in Ohio, Max. Yo, yo, yo. Thanks for having me, Jake. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you coming on. You're definitely a fighter I've had on my radar. And I did want to address something before we talk about mixed martial arts, Max. Sure. This is Forge in Ohio, so I have athletes from the state on the show. I know you're from Chicago, but you fight out of Columbus. You tell me, am I breaking my code here? <laughs> I don't think so, man. You know, I'm, I'm definitely a Buckeye at heart, bro. I came out here in 2015 to go to Ohio State. Graduated in 2019, been here ever since 2015. So, you know, I don't, I don't really have a residency in the state of Ohio, but I've been here for a long time, man. I consider myself uh, a real Columbus, you know, a real Columbus fella. Yeah, I've seen people call you the Columbus killer, the fighting Buckeye. So now I have uh, confidence you'll give me an IO at the end of the interview when I say OH. Believe it. All right, I'm excited to talk to you about your career, your gym, your fights, and so much more, but I usually like to kick off discussions with how the athlete I'm talking to got into the sport. So how'd you get into MMA and the fight game? It's kind of a crazy story, honestly. I mean, I'll, I'll take it all the way back to the beginning. I started wrestling when I was nine years old. Like you said, I grew up in Chicago. Both my parents worked full-time jobs, so during the summer, uh, me and my little brother were stuck in a... Um, like an after-school program, like a summer camp type deal. And we had this kid in the summer camp named Santos who was bullying me and my brother. And uh, this is probably the second year we were in there. We were probably in that summer camp for like three years. And the second year we were in there, at the end of the summer, whenever the fall was coming, they were passing around flyers for the Little Huskies wrestling program. And uh, I remember to this day, it was just a little orange half piece of paper. And I brought it home to my dad. And I told him I want to do this because uh, I'm tired of getting bullied by this dude, Santos. I want to learn how to, you know, defend myself and stand up for myself. My first year wrestling when I was like nine years old, I was only nine. I took third in the state when I was nine. Uh, and then the next year I came back. I loved wrestling. You know, I, I had really bad hand-eye coordination as a kid, man. I sucked at all the sports I played. You know, even t-ball was hard for me. Soccer I was no good at wrestling all I had to do was grab somebody and, and put my hands on them so I was finally happy to be good at some sport but then the next season I came back when I was 10 years old and I went up at age division and the first match of the season I got bombed on my head by one of the dudes from uh, the Harvey Twisters anybody from Illinois knows about the Harvey Twisters but I quit wrestling after that and I picked it back up like two or three years later when I was 12 maybe 13 but in terms of actual MMA, my buddy Mark Antonelli brought me into the gym my senior year of college to help Jake McKenzie train for the world team. Jake McKenzie is a real high-level black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He specializes in the uh, bottom half guard. But I was a national champ in high school in team uh, folk style wrestling. I was a state qualifier individually. But my team, Oak River Forest, was state champs and national champs in high school. So my buddy Mark knew I was good on the feet. 
so he brought me in to help Jake McKenzie train his takedown game. And, uh, I mean, I really, I really liked being back in that environment. You know, I wasn't an athlete for three or four years at the time because I just been doing school and, you know, working and paying my rent and, you know, just happened to be an adult. So that, that kind of got my foot back into jujitsu. Then one night I was out with my buddy, uh, one of my boys on the football team in Ohio state, we were out and just, you know, partying, drinking, just doing our thing. And I went outside of the club we were in just by myself to get some food from one of the street meat vendors that was on the street. So I go outside and I'm just waiting in the line. Like I said, I was kind of drunk. So I'm just dancing, vibing, doing my thing. And next thing I know, someone comes up from behind me, calls me uh, some profanity, and just punched me straight across the back of my jaw. Didn't even see it coming. Just completely, you know, just completely jacked me up. Didn't even see it coming. Um, I turned around, started fighting with this dude, this dreadhead. And then, like, four or five of his homies all just swarmed me and just got to, you know, stomping on me. Like, the worst I ever been beat up, you know what I mean? Like, just absolutely beat the crap out of me. And the way that I ended up was, like, my leg got caught in, like, the tire, like the dolly of this uh, gyro stand. And I was completely sprawled out backwards with my legs stuck, like, folded over myself. In my own head, I was like, these dudes could have killed me, man. If they wanted to, they could have did anything they wanted to me. And after that, I was like, I got to make it my mission to learn how to kick somebody in the face. So after that, I really got into wanting to learn how to do striking. And then that's what brought me back into Ronan because I kind of had faded out of it. Uh, but then after that, I was really into the Muay Thai. And I kind of just fell in love with martial arts after that. But... After I graduated from college, I, I didn't have any real prospects. When I was in college, I was working for a Big Ten Network, Fox Sports, ESPN. I had all these cool internships, so I thought I was in a good spot whenever I graduated that I would have a job opportunity. But I graduated, and I really didn't have any options. I, I went back home. I had to move into my dad's basement, which was, you know, felt like I was a failure. My dad told me ever since I was, like, 12 years old, he told me when I turned 18, I was on my own. You know, that was, like, my my goal uh, I had to move back into the basement and I just you know felt like a failure I was waiting tables and you know wasn't even using the degree I had like three jobs at the time selling phone coverage outside of the subway in, in the winter you know doing like walking up to people like hey switch to sprint so I was in a really bad place mentally man and then COVID hit and uh, I was like this is this is some divine timing because now it's like I have all this time on my hands and I was just doing a lot of reflecting at the time. And I was like, I got to fight for it. And I was like, everything, everything in me was just like, you got to go take what you want. You got to go make it what you want. And this just felt like the direction I had to head. It really felt like it was calling me, man. It just felt like this was the way I had to go. Right. I have a couple of follow-ups from that incredible story. The attack outside of that. Right. I don't know the real tangent there. (laughs) No, you're good. You're good. That attack outside of that college party, was there any motive or reason for them to jump you like that? Or were they just trying to, you know, get something off of you? As far as I could tell, nothing, bro. You know, they didn't rob me. I had never seen those fellows before a day in my life. You know, the dude called me. I hesitate to even say this word because it's just such a hateful word, but he made some kind of derogatory remark about homosexuals and then punched me in my face. You know what I mean? I've had a, I've had a girlfriend for six years, the same girl, you know, but 
dude, it was just like a hate crime as far as I'm concerned. Like, I don't sure. know. I got a man bun. I'm sitting out there dancing, you know, having a good time. And uh, I don't know, man. I just didn't, He just didn't like my vibe. Or he just didn't like seeing a white boy dressed up, you know, because I, I dress pretty well. And I, I carry myself a certain way. And he just didn't like my energy, I guess, man. I, I don't know. And then the story you told when you were wrestling as a kid, you took some time off after landing on your head. What made you want to get back into wrestling after taking what it sounded like two years off? Yeah, about probably about two years. I think I went back into it in the fourth grade. I really wasn't good at any other sports, man. Like that had, that had become like a kind of a part of my identity was like wrestling. And I sucked at soccer, sucked at all these other sports because I would always second guess myself. I always talk to people about how I was, when I was a kid, I was in like third or third, probably third grade, and I got diagnosed with ADHD. And uh, I remember going into the doctor's office and then putting these, you know, like electrodes and these wires and sticking all this stuff on my head and, you know, making brain scans. And I'm just a kid at the time, so I, I don't know what's going on. All I know is that there's something wrong with me, apparently. So for a long time, I just had this like negative relationship with my, you know, idea of myself. And I always was just second guessing myself and my abilities and just, you know, always feeling like I wasn't adequate. Always feeling like, you know, of course, you're not going to get it. You know what I mean? There's something wrong with you. Of course, you're going to of course, you're not as good as these other kids because, you know, this you got this thing that's holding you back. So wrestling for me was like the only thing that I was like a natural at. You know, that was mm -hmm. the only thing that I had picked up and I right away had success at. So I, I gravitated back towards that because it was really the only thing that I was good at. Back in the day, those bullies, once you started wrestling, they bother you anymore? That kid Santos uh, yeah. didn't. We <laughs> never, I never really had like a real confrontation with that guy. Maybe I did and maybe I don't really remember it, but. I never really got bullied much besides that. I was always a likable dude, man. I like to think at least, but I never was very sharp with my words either. Like I've always been, like people used to mess with me as a kid because I was just so nice. Like I was just always, my little brother used to go outside and, and pick dandelions, you know, and smash bugs. And I would cry because he was, he was killing them. You know what I mean? That was always the kind of kid that I was. I was really, I could never hurt a fly when I was a kid. Like, you know? I never really, even when someone was mean to me in elementary school, I just could never really muster up the, to like be that mean back. I just, I just couldn't do it. Right. You have that background in wrestling. You said you kind of first got introduced to Ronin and then you started getting into jujitsu, then again into striking. What were those first kind of experiences like in striking from being a wrestler into striking and actually, you know, having to take shots to the head and things like that? Transitioning into striking was probably equally as hard as transitioning into grappling with the gi. In wrestling, you can be slick. You know, you can be slick and slippery. And in jujitsu, when they get you in that gi, they can slow you down. So, but in terms of striking, I was I was super stiff. You know, I, I approached it like a wrestler. I was I was just real stiff, and it, it took me some time to just understand the body mechanics and the kinesiology of how to stay loose in certain parts of your body, but stay tight in other parts of your body. It took me a while. You know, I was actually just watching a video when I first started, and I was like, man, look at that guy. <laughs> I was pretty stiff when I started, and it took me a while just doing, like, yoga and flexibility things to open up my hips so I can kick high and 
it's been it's been a process for sure do you feel like you still even have room to grow right now or do you feel like you're finally kind of coming into your own getting into your prime and really being that that dynamic striker but also having that wrestling background oh man i mean i'm probably tapped into probably less than 30 percent of Mm. the level of striking that i'm going to need to be tapped into to get to the level that i'm planning to get to i'm pretty good from the outside my my range control is pretty good you know i i lean on the footwork from taekwondo and karate to you know control the range with that kind of bladed approach that bladed stance but in terms of actually being in the pocket and making reads you know when it comes to boxing and muay thai actually being comfortable in that pocket and having the muscle memory to make the right response in the split second that you do have i got a ways to go still you know that's what i'm working on every day right now with my coach aaron boggs and josh williams and yeah, long way to go still. I wouldn't even say that I'm not even halfway there in terms of where I'm going to be with my striking. Right, and there's something to be said to that when you're a 6-0 and amateur with belts and have the status that you do at the amateur level. When did you find out once you got into MMA that not only were you good enough to make a career out of it, but that you wanted to make a career out of it? Honestly, man, this is going to sound kind of arrogant, but I knew before I started that if I put everything into this, that I could take it as far as God is going to let me. But I knew before I even started that I had the mental and physical attributes to be able to take this pretty far. Like I said, I wrestled my whole life since I was nine years old under Mike Powell, who is anyone in the wrestling community knows Mike Powell. He's in the Hall of Fame. That dude, that dude had us working out until you were, you know, puking, crying in a little puddle on the ground. And then you got to pick yourself back up and keep going. You know what I mean? We, we did that five days a week for, for years of my life. So, and, uh, I was a Greco Roman wrestler and a lot of these guys that grapple, you know, a lot of grapplers in jujitsu don't have great takedowns, but even the wrestlers that came up doing folk style wrestling, a lot of these guys aren't comfortable with upper body ties. And uh, ever since I first watched UFC, I knew that if I got my hands locked around you and your upper body at 155 pounds, anybody in the world at 155 pounds, if I get my hands locked around you, I'm sending you. I'm skying you in the air. And I, I felt like that since before I ever did my first fight. That hard training and workout, is that something that you respond well to? You know, it's something that I think I do respond well to, but Mm -hmm. it's not just because of who I am. You know what I mean? It's not just some kind of, it's not just because I was born this way. It's because the gruesome fire (laughs) that we went through all the time in that Oak Park wrestling room. I mean, anybody that knows American wrestling, folk style wrestling, they know about Oak Park. I mean, before I even... Before I even started MMA fighting, I had a couple different times where people stopped me in the airport and they were like, oh, you're Max Metzger. You wrestled for Oak Park. And I wasn't even one of the best wrestlers on the team by any stretch of the imagination. I only started on varsity my senior year. Our team was so good that I actually was stuck on junior varsity, freshman, sophomore, and junior year. I went I went unscored on for three seasons. You know what I mean? I, I, didn't, have a, I didn't have someone take me down for three seasons. I almost quit the team because I couldn't get on varsity. I was behind Kamal Bay, 
you know, who's right now about to go win the Olympics for us at Greco and U.S. Behind Isaiah White, Larry Early, Matt Rundell. Even to even to start on varsity in my senior year, I had to wrestle off against Roland Sturkey, who's a, uh, I think he plays corner now at Central Michigan. But he was coming off an All-American offseason at Fargo. So even to make the lineup at 182 pounds my senior year, me and Roland both weighed 168. But neither of us could beat Kamal at 170, and neither of us could beat uh, Matt Rendell at 160. So we had to wrestle off at 182, and we wrestled twice. The first time I beat him, probably about like six points. And then the second time we wrestled off, we went into quadruple overtime. So even to make the starting lineup as a senior, I had to wrestle off against the All-American, who was a sophomore. Was it frustrating for you when you weren't on the varsity team? You know, you said you didn't even get taken down at all for an entire season. Did you feel like frustrated and almost held back not being on the varsity team? Dude, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. You know, no, my, my teammates weren't mean to me, but you know mm-hmm. how it is. There's, there's a hierarchy in sports. You know what I mean? In groups of men, there's hierarchies. And uh, I wasn't a varsity starter. As much as I wanted to be one of the guys and as much as I wanted to, you know, hold myself with respect and have everyone respect me, I was a junior varsity wrestler. You know what I mean? Lifelong wrestler. Wrestling since I was nine years old. Wrestling on JV. So, I mean, I, I hated it. It was like I hated it. There was there was nothing worse than that for me. Right, I could only imagine. I wanted to talk about one of your social media posts because you wrote that you had torn your LCL and PCL in both knees. You fractured your skull, separated your shoulder, and broke a few fingers and toes along the way. I know the fight game is relentless, and it certainly sounds like it has been for you. How have you overcome those obstacles in your life? Man, shout out to uh, Ben Patrick, the knees over toes guy. But, uh... I actually got a crazy story, man, based on the the tangent that you're taking our conversation towards. Before my first fight, um, this was kind of like at the end of COVID, when COVID, probably in the middle of COVID, honestly. But whenever you have a a fight, before the fight happens, you obviously have weigh-ins, then you have doctors' meetings, coaches' meetings. And uh, on this particular fight, my first fight, the uh, doctors were running like an hour late to the meeting. And uh, I was the third fight of the night. So by the time that we finished the coaches' meetings and the doctor checkups and all that, I only had like 10, 15 minutes at the most to warm up to get ready to fight. We, we had been sitting around in this room waiting for the doctors for two hours. So my body was cold. You know, I was rushing. I was rushing through my warm-up, doing my yoga poses. I'm in a pigeon pose. And uh, completely blew my LCL in the warm-up for my first fight. I remember clear as day in my head right now, sitting there in that pigeon pose and just hearing a loud ping, my whole weight shifting down because something had gave in my knee. And the guy standing in front of me goes, are you okay? What was that? And I just looked at him in the eyes and didn't say a damn thing. I got up, shook my knee a little bit. And it felt like it was hanging by like a thread. It felt like my leg was like dangling. And wow. I remember in my head, I remember in my head being like, I just hurt. I just really hurt my knee. And I remember being like, am I going to tell my coach, like, call off the fight? Am I going to tell my coach I, I can't fight? I mean, I just really messed myself up. And uh, in my head, I was like, this is the journey that you signed up for. Like, this is the first 
real trial, the first real adversity that is presenting itself on your journey. And are, are you going to cower away or are you going to, you know, step up to the plate because this is the name of the game in the fight game. This is what, this is what it is, you know? So I, I put on that game face. And if you see the pay-per-view, I actually danced to the cage. I was like skipping to the cage and the ref had to stop me so he could check my fingernails and my mouthpiece and my cup. But that was crazy. In terms of overcoming all the different injuries, it's just rest, man. I got I got bad knees. I, I grew up with uh, tendonitis in both of my knees. I had Osgood schlatters when I was in the eighth grade, so I had patella tendonitis. So the way that my body developed, I got a real strong lower back, real strong hips, but naturally I have kind of weak knees. So, you know, like you said, I, I blew the PCL left knee, menis- meniscus left knee, LCL in both knees. So it's been a, a real process of understanding and learning how to strengthen the knees in a way where I don't have to continue to take time off due to injury. I, I calculated how much time I had taken off since I started. And from the injuries, I've had to take off close to 40 weeks, which is insane. I've only been fighting for, you know, almost three years now. Right. I, I pretty much missed an entire year almost because of injuries. Is that something that worries you going forward in your career? Kind of your knees are just fundamentally not as strong as the rest of your body. Hell yeah, it is. Yeah. But, you know, that's why I got to do what I got to do to take preventative measures to make sure that um, this doesn't happen. I remember actually watching Calvin Cater's most recent fight. That was right after I'd hurt my meniscus. And I was watching his fight and uh, he blew, I believe it was his ACL. And then one of one of the other major ligaments in the knee, but he blew both of those. He blew one in the first round, and then came out in the second round, threw a kick, and then blew the other one. Mm-hmm. So honestly, man, the way that I'm looking at this is, you know, this is what God has put in front of me, so that whenever I get to that stage, whenever I get to that big show, I don't have to go through this. I've already gone through this. I've already you know, had to learn and had to incorporate the exercises that I'm going to have to do on a weekly basis to strengthen the tendons and to strengthen the connective tissues. So by the time I get to that big stage, I'm already in a spot where I don't have to go through this. That's the way that I'm looking at it. Have you had any other significant injuries like you did in that first career fight going into any other fight in your career? No, thankfully. Yeah. Um, no, thankfully. Every... Every other fight besides that, I've been pretty much healthy. You know, there's always little things, always something with the shoulder or your hip or your elbow. But, you know, that's just those are just little things, you know. Nothing significant going into a fight besides that one, thankfully. Yeah, and the the first fight of your career was the only fight in your career that's gone to a decision. You go into it with your knee barely hanging on by a thread, you said. How in the world were you able to start round one, get in the cage, and even go through rounds one, two, and three? Yeah. I remember walking into the cage. I told my coach that my my plan was to open up with a spinning back fist. I'm sorry, a spinning back kick in the first moments of the fight to put him on notice and to let him know who's on offense and who's on defense, who's the predator here and who's the prey. You know what I mean? And uh, one of my teammates at the time who was a pro, uh, my boy Dre, he was like, what are you talking about? Don't do that. And I remember almost second guessing myself and being like, oh, man, like he's saying I shouldn't do that. Maybe I shouldn't do that. You know, maybe I should take a more conservative approach. But in my heart, I knew that that's what I needed to do. I mean, fighting is about getting on an offensive cycle and staying on the offensive cycle. So 
you got to put the guy on notice right away. But I threw that spinning back kick, and it landed clean, didn't hurt my knee. And then I threw, like, a roundhouse kick with the knee that was injured after that. And I remember it feeling like it was just hanging on by, like, a piece of dental floss. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's the last kick I'm throwing this fight. We're, we're wrestling and we're using hands. But the adrenaline dump that I had in that fight was insane. I mean, my after the first round was over, I was so exhausted because the amount of adrenaline that I was experiencing because of the knee, um, I was just completely exhausted that fight. And, yeah, that's the only one that went the distance. And I'd like to blame it on that. But Clinton Ewing was a good dude, man. He mm-hmm. was a good opponent. Dude had a good background in Taekwondo. He had a solid base in jiu-jitsu despite being a white belt. So I don't want to take anything away from him, man. He's a good competitor. I'm still in awe that you were even able to compete, nonetheless go out there and compete for three rounds and pick up a decision win. Is there a way to describe the feeling you felt after winning your MMA debut after the adversity you had gone through with the injury? Mm, it was bittersweet, man, because, you know, after I sat down, everyone was all excited for me, and I was I was happy that I had won. But after I stood up, the amount of swelling that was in the knee, I couldn't, I couldn't walk. I mean, everyone's like, let's go party, let's go get a drink. And I'm like, nah, man, I got to go. I got to go get some ice on this thing and elevate it right now, you know? So it was, it was bittersweet. Everyone's calling me, texting me. So it was awesome to get all that support. But mm-hmm. it was uh, a very sobering moment to try to stand up and be like, oh, I can't walk. Talking to Mad Max Metzger on Forge in Ohio. Since the debut, you've rattled off five wins, four by knockout and one by submission. You've also fought and won some titles along the way. You strike me as a humble guy, but is it hard not to get caught up in all the success you've had? You know, not really, man. You know, if you look at my social media, I don't really seem like a humble guy. Um, yeah. But I, I like to think that I am. All these amateur titles, like, what does it really mean, bro? You know what I mean? You're the number one amateur. Okay, cool. What does that mean? You're maybe top top 500 in the world or probably even less than that as an amateur number one. I think that I could be pro right now. I've been trying to get the athletic commission in Ohio to let me go pro since my fifth win. But uh, they want me to do one more. So I'm going to be competing at the Arnold in March. Um, no contract has been signed yet, but we have a verbal agreement with a pretty good opponent. Okay, so that's the plan fight in March, and that would be an amateur contest? Yes, sir. That'd be the last one. Interesting. Is that for a title, a defense of one of your titles? What would be the, at stake? That's going to be for a title at 165 pounds. So that's the weight class they call super lightweight. It's kind of, it's not really a weight class, but it is. You know, the UFC doesn't have it, but certain other promotions like Eagle FC does have it. Right. Um, so yeah, that, that's going to be at 165 pounds. So I'm not going to have to cut too much for that one at all. Are you in a place where you can announce your opponent yet, or is it just kind of the verbal agreement and we'll, we'll leave it at that. It's the verbal agreement, but I don't, I don't mind throwing it out there, man. It's, it's a guy that I was supposed to fight previously, but he had to pull out of the contest due to something that happened in his family. Um, it's this fella from Dayton, Ohio. I believe his name's Graham Hunter. Okay. He's a boxer, kickboxer, five and oh five knockouts, four of them coming in the first round. So he he, he should be my best opponent I've faced to date. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually really excited for the challenge. I, I really am. I'm, it keeps me up at night, you know, thinking about getting in there with this guy because I know, I know he's got that dog in him too, but I don't think he's got that same kind of dog as me.
Yeah, he's ranked third among active Ohio amateur lightweights behind, of course, you and your teammate, Kobe Woodall. You kind My of boy. already, yeah, you kind of already mentioned it. Is this something that like gets you up when you get a great opponent like this? Does that just make you more motivated to get in there and, you know, get this fight accomplished? Hell yeah, man. My last opponent, Kessa McLean, was a, he was a good opponent, you know, but I didn't have that same kind of feeling as I do with this fella here. And same with the last guy. The guy I fought before Keston McLean was Kyle Eckerd. Uh Kobe mm-hmm. also faced him and TKO'd him in the first round, same as I did. So going in there, I already knew what that was. You know, my I was trying to beat Kobe's time. You know what I mean? I was going to ask you about that, yeah. Yeah. If you've ever seen Lord of the Rings with uh, Gimli and the Legolas, that's how I was thinking about it. was like, who's going who's gonna to rack up more bodies here? You know what I mean? Who's going who's gonna to get this dude out of there quicker? Yeah. And you won. So that one, you got him out there in uh, 30 seconds. Yeah. But that one didn't really motivate me very much. That one was more like, man, I better not lose. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for this next one. This one really lights a fire in my belly and gets me into the gym on those early mornings. You know, it motivates you to do those two a days, three a days. When looking at all the wins in your career, do you look back at one and think to yourself, you know, yeah, that's my favorite fight? Sure. You know, that probably had to be my first title fight in uh, Pittsburgh at the at the Rivers Casino down there in Pittsburgh. That was my first time in a venue that really felt like it was the atmosphere of a high-level promotion, you know. I fight down here for Ohio Combat League, and they do everything the right way. I mean, that is a they – run, they run a real tight ship down at Ohio Combat League. But we're, we're down there fighting in the middle of, like, a cornfield in Ohio. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This one was, we were in the middle of the heart of Pittsburgh. We were in the casino. They had subwoofers that were, you could feel the vibrations of the music, like you were in the middle of a concert, lights going. And that was my first title fight. And in that one, I was 3-0, and and I was going up against a guy who was 5-1 and with five first-round knockouts. So on paper, he was supposed to be really good, too. And I remember the preparation for that one, I was taking him real seriously, the same way that I'm... You know, the same way I'm taking Graham Hunter. But, yeah, I remember I remember getting up on that cage and looking at the audience and the crowd sitting on the cage and being like, damn, I did it, you know? I put in all this work for this, and I, I made it happen. So that's definitely my favorite win. And that was your only win via submission. Was there anything special with that as well? In that fight in the third round, he hit me with a knee bar. So I, I had taken his back, had him up against the cage, and he inverted and rolled for a knee bar. And uh, that was the second time that I tore my LCL. So that was on the other knee. So I had my weight based into the knee bar, kind of riding that pressure. And the same thing as when I was in the pigeon pose before my first fight, you just heard that loud pop. The weight shifts down. You know, your body adjusts to, lo- to no longer having that base because the tendon has gone. And I remember in my head being like, I just really hurt myself. And I remember having like a, a brief moment in my head where it's like, I almost looked up at the ref. You know what I mean? I, I almost looked up at the ref and I was like, hell no. I, mean, I, I literally kept my eyes closed. A lot of the times on the ground when I'm wrestling, I don't even use my eyes. I have my eyes closed. So I have no distractions. I can just feel the positions with my body. But uh, in that moment of me, like that happening and me almost being like having like a mental lapse in my focus, that's whenever I sunk in the head and arm choke and got the finish. I think it was one second left in the fight when he tapped. 
Yeah, it looks like at 149 in round three, the arm triangle choke. That's an insane story. And you mentioned wrestling with your eyes closed. Is that something you've always done in your career? Uh, never in never in actual wrestling. You know, you, you got to be able to see right in wrestling, particularly before you get the takedown. And it's the same way in MMA. You got to be able to see when, before you get the takedown. But once I got a hold of you, and once I'm on your back, or once I'm in a position where we're on the ground and we're in kind of a stagnant position and not a lot of movement happening, why do I need my eyes? All I I want to just be able to focus on riding the pressure, focus on the sensation of my body position. You know, sometimes I see UFC fighters on TV looking around. You know what I mean? And in the middle of a in the middle of a grappling exchange, you'll see their eyes. They look up. I mean, they're looking around, kind of like, you know, almost like they're flustered. Like they're like, you know what I mean? Their internal dialogue is running crazy. They're looking around like they don't really know what to do with their attention. So I, I just, I close my eyes. I just let my eyelids relax and I just focus on feeling and riding out those positions. It helps me stay focused. Yeah, it sounds like it almost helps you zone out all the noise. Maybe the crowd noise kind of gets you into that position to grapple and also maybe even helps you hear what your corner is saying at times. Exactly. Exactly right. It just helps you stay completely in your own space, stay in your own, you know, internal state as opposed to, you know, opening up the window, you know, literally opening up the window that is your eyes, opening up that window to let other information in. It's like, no, I don't need that information. I'm, I'm doing my thing right now. Right. I wanted to talk about those title fights as well, because you fought for many titles. Have the nerves ever gotten to you before a title fight in your career or does the stake of an amateur title being on the line affect how you approach a fight? Mm, not really, bro. Like, like I said, I don't really put any bearing onto these amateur titles. Um, it doesn't really mean anything to me. I mean, even these, even these amateur wins don't really mean anything. If, if I lose in an amateur competition, what's it mean? You know what I mean? It doesn't mean a lot. It's not like there was money on the line. It's not like I had to take a big step backwards in the progression of my career. So these amateur fights, obviously you go in there with the risk of bodily harm. And, you know, I mean, obviously the more wins I accumulate in an amateur career, the better position that's going to put me in and the more leverage I'm going to have for my pro career. But no, nah, man, I don't, I don't really think about the nerves for these title fights. Really the way I deal with the nerves is in any fight is all you can do is your best. You know what I mean? I remember... In my last wrestling match, we were in this team state finals against Carl Sandberg. And uh, I was wrestling this fella. He had beaten me before. And at individual states, he had taken fourth that year. Uh, and I lost in the first round of states to the guy that won state, Moss or DeMoss. Um, so I didn't get to wrestle back. So I lost my first match of state, and that was it for me. But then at team state, I got to go against this fella who had took fourth. And I remember in my head being like, man, dude, your whole life since you were nine years old has led up to this moment. You know what I mean? You got to win this match. You got to win this match. And I remember having this like epiphany. that just like set me free where it was like, hey, man, all you can do is try your best. Go out there and leave it all on the table and the dice are going to roll how they roll. Give it your best. And then you can sleep night. You can sleep well. You know what I mean? You're going to go home and it's going to be what it's going to be. But leave nothing else out there. Leave it all out there. And that's what I tell myself before every fight. The result is going to be what the result's going to be. Fate is going to dictate what happens. You know what I mean? As long as you do your best, the stars are going to line up how they line up.
since that epiphany, it sounds like you've kind of had that mindset ever since in all the fights of your career. Is that going to help you loosen up in the cage, not be so strict and be so focused on getting the win and kind of just, you know, having fun in there and throwing the strikes that you want to throw? Hell yeah, bro. You, you, you hit the nail right on the head. It's, uh, I really do feel like it frees, it frees you up. I think that whenever you put, it's the same as anything in life, really. Like, I don't mean to get all philosophical, but whenever you make things about the outcome, whenever you make things about the outcome, hitting the, hitting the goal, um, you can't control that. You know what I mean? You can't control what ultimately occurs with the way that things end up. All you can control is your internal locus of control. You know what I mean? All you can control is your actions, your level of focus, not allowing external events to dictate your internal state of focus. And that's how it is with everything, right? I mean, everything in life. Yeah, more about like the the journey than the outcome itself. Right. And then that frees you up to enjoy yeah. the journey. Right. You mentioned you don't put much stock into those amateur titles. They do make for some pretty amazing uh props you can use in some Instagram pictures I saw. Is that kind of what you use them for? Yeah, man. I got I got them sitting here on the ground in my bedroom, you know what I mean? There you go. I, they're just they're just sitting in the corner. Yeah, it's definitely a good leverage, like a good tool for leverage on the social media, on the branding side. You know what I mean? Someone someone comes to my page and they see me holding all these different belts. They're like, oh, this dude must be legit. So it's good for like an image. It's good for the brand. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really, really mean anything to me. What would you say is the biggest challenge of being an amateur fighter? This day, just finding a fight. <laughs> I've been, I mean, shout out to this dude, Graham Hunter, for... For, you know, accepting the fight verbally. We're going to sign the contract. Hopefully he doesn't pull out again like he did last time. But it's been hard for me and Kobe both to find a fight, man. Once you go pro, it's going to be a lot easier because you're on the world stage now. You got you got all these guys. It'll be, I'll be back zero and zero mm-hmm. on the world stage. Um, and as pros, you have people that have records that go all the way up to 30, 40 fights. And the amateurs, you don't really see that, right? I mean, these people that have amateur careers, by the time they get to 10 fights, 15 fights at the most a lot of times they're going pro so it's just a much smaller you know sample size a much smaller pool to be able to find matchups in right and yeah kobe talked about that a lot in trying to find matchups and how he wants to go pro just to be able to find more matchups he was talking about going pro after his fight on january 7th i also wanted to talk to you about kobe and just ronin training center as a whole he kind of talked to me about what the gym was like but what is ronin like for you Man, I love Ronan. I really do. I think the the trifecta of Ronan is like a three-headed dragon, man. You got Josh Williams doing the MMA, focused specifically on the intricacies of the sport, where it's you in the cage with small gloves. You got Vitor Oliveira. I get my no-gi, my no-gi jiu-jitsu work in. You know what I mean? Anyone that knows jiu-jitsu knows Vitor Oliveira. He's a five-time world gold medalist, one of the best to ever do it. And then for my striking coach, I got Aaron Boggs, who is he's a real vet in the sport. He sent sent a fella, Jaleel Barnes, to uh, the Olympics, the, the USA world team for Muay Thai kickboxing. So Ronan is everything I need, man. I mean, I had a, I had a teammate leave Ronan to go train down at Jackson Wink because he felt like he wasn't getting what he needed from here. But I think it was too soon. I think that mm-hmm. this this gym right here, has everything that you need to develop yourself into a very, very high-level mixed martial artist. And 
maybe sometime down the line, whenever you're 15 fights into your pro career, maybe then it'll be time to go change ponds. You know what I mean? Maybe then it's time to go train an American soccer team or American kickboxing academy. But my boy Conor McGregor said it best, man. I mean, I'm in this game with the same people I started with. This is my team and these are my guys. And I really do believe that God brought me here and that this is going to be what I need it to be. Yeah, it sounds like a great environment. And Kobe even talked about how Ronan uses a lot of analytics. And he said it was a mix of the mental aspect of fighting with some of the X's and O's in the game as well. Do you stand by that? And does that fit your fighting style? Oh, yeah. We talk about Josh. Josh is like Master Splinter. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And we're, and we're the Teenage new Ninja Turtles. The dude is a, a genius when it comes to this mixed martial arts, when it comes to human fighting. He he is an analytical machine. I mean, we constantly are using terms like a mechanical advantage, maintaining a tactical advantage. And I go to other gyms. I train at other gyms too. You know, mm-hmm. I go I go around, try to get different looks, see what different coaches have for me. And a lot of these dudes are still stuck on this Neanderthal, you know, this this macho. Who's gonna go first? Who's gonna hit harder? You know, who's stronger? Who's faster? Let's sit in the 50-50 and figure out who the better man is. It's like, no, man. Let me let me go ahead and, and get every single advantage stacked up on my side of the cards that I can get. Let me get every single point of leverage, every single angle of understanding so that I can put myself in the best position possible. And that's what Josh is about. And that's why that's why I'm riding with him until the until the wheels fall off. You said that you get different looks from time to time. I saw that you recently got work in with a legend, Mark the Hammer Coleman at Immortal Martial Arts. Yeah. Talk to me about that experience. Uh, Mark Mark Coleman's obviously, you know, his name holds weight, right? Everyone knows Mark Coleman. Oh, yeah. He's the first, first heavyweight world champ in UFC history. You know, Olympic Olympic medalist in, in wrestling. He's really good for the motivational aspect of things, man. You know what I mean? He brings an intensity to the room from that level of experience and from that level of, you know, understanding what it does take to get to the highest level. He brings a a very high level of intensity to our workouts and he's a really great motivational coach. I know you trained with the likes of Miles Hershey Robinson, who was on episode one of Forged in Ohio and other guys. Yeah. Other guys like uh, Joshua Pereira and Lucas Siebert who are fighting soon. What's it like being in that type of environment where you're always surrounded by such a talented group of guys? You're great, man. You know, this small circle that we have here in the Columbus metropolitan area, we're all, you know, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as guys like Josh Pereira and Miles and Lucas and Kobe, we know we're all in this together. We know this is all, you know, yeah, we might have to fight each other's buddies. We might have to fight each other on this small regional scene. But ultimately, we're really trying to feed off of each other. I mean, to be able to go in there and exchange techniques and exchange bits of information with these guys is a huge blessing. Absolutely. Would you welcome, I mean, obviously wouldn't welcome it, but would you be okay with going out there and fighting one of those guys down the, down the line? You know, man, I don't want to, I, I don't really think I can say I'd be okay with it. Right. You know, my, my spirit would not like that. If me and you, if me and you train together, me and you shed blood and, you know, me and you are in this together, it'll really hurt me to have to try to compartmentalize that human relationship that part of my soul like my friend my brother and try to compartmentalize that and make it cold 
you know, and make it make it dog eats dog. I got to take this from you. That would really hurt me to have to do that. I would I would not like to do that. Kobe always used to joke around like, yeah, me and you could fight each other. And I, and I was like, Kobe, like, what are you talking about, bro? Like, I, I'm thinking about, you know, taking your face and bouncing my knee off the middle of your <laughs> nose. You know what I mean? And that made, I do not want to do that, bro, at all. Right. Like, no part, no part of me wants to do that to you, bro. And he was like, yeah, you know, when you say it like that, you're right. But the name of the game is you might have to fight your, your buddy down the line. You know, maybe me and Kobe got to fight each other down the line in the UFC. And, you know, it all be in sportsmanship. And then after the fight's over, you know what I mean? go get a drink and, and talk it out, right? But, yeah, no, I would not want to do that. Yeah, that would be one hell of a contest. I do have to say that, though. Uh, once again, this is Mad Max Metzger with us on Forge in Ohio. Are you shocked by how easy this has come for you? Maybe it hasn't been easy behind the scenes, and we talked about the injuries, but from an outsider's perspective, you're 6-0, and have five finishes, and are dominating opponents each and every contest. Yeah, man, I don't mean to give myself a pat on the back, but... I actually haven't been punched or kicked or taken down yet. Nobody's landed a punch on me. Nobody's been able to kick me in my leg or anything. You know what I mean? I'm completely unscathed, never lost a round. And I guess you're right. On the outside, it does look like it's coming easy for me, but it's really not, bro. I mean, the amount of attention that I put into this is borderline insane. I mean... That's the amount of time that I spend thinking about this game and trying to evolve my repertoire of, you know, making my body into a weapon, you know, whether it's stretching or developing strength in small muscle groups to, you know, get more punching power. It's a intensity that I have all the time. I mean, I watch hours of film every day. I go to bed every night watching film. I don't watch TV. You know what I mean? I don't have any hobbies. This is all that I do. The, the amount of intensity that I believe it's going to take and the amount of focus that I have to put into this to be able to sleep at night, knowing that I'm putting my body on the line and putting my health on the line. I have to put everything I can into this every second of the day. I mean, it puts strain on my relationship with my girl. You know what I mean? My girl's like, damn, Max, can we talk about anything besides fighting? Can, can you look up from your phone for a second and, and get off these sponsorship agreements and can you be present with me? And I'm like, I'm trying, babe, you know, I'm trying my best here, but I got to put everything into this. I got to be Kobe Bryant mama mentality. I got to be bought in to the degree where I can feel comfortable when I walk in there. I know I left no stone unturned. I know that I did everything I could possibly do to put myself in the position so that ultimately the universe will reward me. Because I really do believe if you walk in there, you feel it in your spirit. You know if you did everything you could do. You know if you cut corners. And, uh, you know what I mean? The outcome is going to be determined by that. Based on everything you said, it just sounds like you're super dedicated to this fight game and what you're accomplishing in, in the cage every single time you enter it. Do you expect to find similar success when you turn pro as you did as an amateur coming off of five stoppage victories, potentially even six when you when you fight in March? You know, I think there probably will be a bit of a learning curve, but the thing that stands out to me the most is... I've gotten the takedown and gotten to full mount in the first round of every one of my fights except for one. Um, mm. The fight against Jared Gerber, I had not got the knockout in the first 10 seconds of the second round on the feet. I can't really complain but, about that. Yeah, no, love that. Great little clip, too. Shout out to my boy David Aaron with Creative and Vision for getting that footage. But 
thing that stands out to me the most about after I go pro is my ground and pound is going to become vicious when I can start throwing elbows at you. You know, when, I, when I'm on top of these guys in the amateurs, you can use your armpits, you can use your elbows to wrap up my hands so I can't punch you in the face. But whenever I can start elbowing you in the face, it's going to be a whole different ball game. I was just telling my grandpa on Christmas, my grandfather, Jack Metzger, is a huge fan of, of watching me. He's been watching me my whole life wrestling since I was nine. He's like my biggest fan. Love that dude. But uh, I was telling him, I don't know if you guys can watch these pro fights because you guys are going to be looking at Max like, you know, this dude's lunatic. This dude's a psycho. I mean, he's opening people's faces up and taking their noses off with the elbows. So I think that transitioning to the pros is honestly going to be favorable to me. My, my style is very explosive. I have knees coming at your head, elbows coming at your head. And when I'm, when I'm able to do that in the pros on the ground, it's going to be, it's going to be rough for these dudes out here, man. Damn. That even makes me more excited to see you turn pro and see what you can accomplish as a professional mixed martial artist before we wrap up. And I don't even really want to wrap up because this conversation has been so good. <laughs> uh, I did want to talk a little bit about your brand. You have an incredible website at madmaxmetzger.com. Were you the one that put that together? No. Um, I just, I just briefly a second ago, shouted out my boy, David Aaron with creative Envision. Um, that's like my, that's like my marketing team, my content team. Mm -hmm. That's a buddy of mine from college, my boy, David. Me and him used to sit out in the Oval freshman year of, of college, and every night we would go out there and smoke a joint and talk about what we're going to do with our lives because we both knew that taking the regular route, you know, taking the office job, nine-to-five route, we just weren't those kind of dudes. You know what I mean? This is not the kind of route that was an option for either of us. So we used to go out there with our pen and paper and, you know, talk about what we were going to do, you know, talk about the different options that we had and try to narrow this down and figure out what we're going to make of ourselves. And he ultimately ended up, you know, opening up his own business, creative and vision. And then now he's working in the NHL. He was at the Super Bowl last year. So yeah, that's, that's my guy who does all of my content kind of, kind of stuff, man. He made that website for me. He's been in most of my fights doing the videography he constantly is advising me in terms of sponsorship deals. Yeah, so he may, he put that together for me. Yeah, it sounds like he also puts together the videography of your YouTube shorts and Instagram reels. Again, those are some insane clips that you have promoting yourself. Is that the the team behind that? A lot of it is a lot of it is me. You know, yeah. they're very busy. They're 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 pulling in contacts and clients that are paying them thousands of dollars. You know what I mean? And I obviously don't have those kinds of resources at my disposal right now. So a lot of it is me. You know, a lot of it is he's done favors for me and, and charged me less money than he would charge a typical client. So a lot of a lot of this stuff is me, you know, most most of it is me, honestly. That's still very, very impressive. Uh, on your website, you have a quote from one of the greatest athletes of all time. Don't be afraid to fail. Be afraid not to try by Michael Jordan. Why this in particular quote from Jordan? I actually got this little. Uh, this little paperweight sitting right here in front of me, man. My grandma gave it to me when I graduated from middle school in the eighth grade. And it, and it says just that. Don't be afraid to fail. Be afraid not to try. And uh, I've had that little paperweight on my desk ever since the eighth grade. I've had that, I've had that paperweight this whole time. You know, I, I see it every day. And 
It really just sticks with me, man. It's just the truth. You know, what? who, who said that? Which president said that? The greatest fear that we have is not that we are inadequate, but it's that we're, you know, capable beyond all measure. It's the same. It's the same kind of thing to me. It's you miss every shot you don't take. Your your fear is what's holding you back. Your fear of not making it. Your fear of being judged for failing. That's what's holding you back. I believe that God made every human being capable of genius level, genius level talent in everybody. But what holds people back is that fear, that fear of inadequacy. And, uh, you know, that's what I was stuck on for a long time with this ADHD stuff was just feeling inadequate, feeling like I was second guessing myself. And, uh, yeah, man, that's, that's why that's a really big quote to me is because you miss every shot you don't take, you know, if you don't put yourself out there, the universe isn't going to reward you. Yeah. And it sounds like that's something you look back to maybe when in times of self-doubt in terms of your career path or some of the injuries you've experienced, is that something that is kind of like a momentum that you always look back to in terms of building your self-confidence and just something that is motivational that you can build on. Hell yeah. 100%. You know, my life was pretty good, man. I had, you know, two parent household. My parents were both stable individuals, you know, upstanding individuals, both had good jobs, put themselves through college. My mom was the first person in her family to go to college. My dad found himself in some deep trouble when he was young, when he was 18 and dug himself into a deep, deep rut. And, uh, you know, got himself out of that because he ultimately had me and my little brother. But, you know, I went, I've been through a lot of pain, man, with this whole, you know, self-hate thing. Like, I, I used to really, I used to really, you know, hate that I was inadequate. I used to hate that I had ADHD, that I, I couldn't, I just, I hated it. Like, I had, I didn't really realize how much pain I was in as a kid until I eventually was like in my twenties and was like, man, like I was in a really dark place for a lot of my childhood with this stuff in my head. So, yeah, I mean, that's what ultimately always comes back to is that I'm really not doing this for myself. I'm doing this for all those kids out there that are doing the, you know, that are stuck in that same kind of cycle, that same kind of internal dialogue relationship. My, my real dream is to open up my own gym. That's really the whole reason I'm doing this. I want to make as much money as I can knocking people out in the cage, but the thing that gets me out of bed and gets me on my morning jog or that gets me going to the gym is that I'm going to one day open this up, my own gym, and I'm going to pay back. You know, I'm going to pave the way for the next generation of young men and young women who want to make a change in their life, who want to, you know, stand up for what they believe in. And I always tell myself that Mike Powell passed the torch to me. He didn't even mean to, but I took it. Yeah, that's a great goal, and and look at you now. You're a six and zero lightweight fighter, amazing amateur fighter in the state of Ohio. You're gonna fight in March, then go pro, and at the end of it all, your main goal: opening your own gym and giving it back to other people who might be in the same spot you were just a couple of years ago. Before we wrap up, anything you want to shout out in terms of social media handles or sponsorships? Hell yeah! You know, shout out to the Ronan Training Center. Shout out, most importantly, to Josh Williams, man, putting in all the time with me every day in the gym. Shout out to my main training partners, Mark Antonelli, Kobe Woodall, Melvin Harris, Regal Reese. Shout out to Matt Brown for letting me train at Immortal. I don't even really know Matt Brown, but he's always opened the door to us fighters and given us a platform to continue to grow. And in terms of my sponsors, I really only have two real sponsors right now, but um, shout out to Lightbody Herbals. 
Shout out to Erin Lane, color specialist. She's doing hair. And shout out to Art Hem Holland, the trucking company. Those are my those are my people that are backing me and, and helping support me on this. Um, anybody that's watching the Ohio Combat League on January 7th at the casino, I'm going to be doing the color commentary outside of the cage. Ooh. So anyone that is buying the pay-per-view, you know, check out your boy. Tap in with your boy, man. Thanks again, Max, for coming on Forge in Ohio. You have no idea how much I appreciate fighters taking the time to join me for an interview, and it sounds like i got to get some more guys out of that Ronin gym on the show as well. Before I let you go, though, I do end interviews the same way here on Forge in Ohio. I mentioned it in the top uh, with a chant <laughs> that goes like this. OH! I Thanks, Max. I legitimately think you're one of the most talented fighters I've had on the show, and I can't wait to see what 2023 has in store for you, man. Hell yeah, man. I really appreciate you giving us a chance to get this out there, man. Seriously, you know. I don't want to just be telling my story, you know what I mean, to anybody that just, hey, listen to me, you know what I mean? So having the opportunity to get this out there and continue to help us build our base, man, thank you for what you're doing. Look forward to coming back on here sometime. That was Mad Max Metzger, the undefeated first-ranked amateur lightweight fighter from the state of Ohio. His finishing ability is unmatched. I know he has a huge calendar year ahead of him in terms of big fights and potentially going pro. Hope you all enjoyed episode 11 of Forged in Ohio. Until next week, check me out on Instagram at Jake underscore Murrin. And don't forget to download, share, and subscribe to the podcast. I've been your host, Jake Murrin, and this was... Forged in Ohio.